Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information on this show or ask us some questions, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, Kim. You ready to talk some wine today? Absolutely, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. yourself? I'm doing fine, thanks. All right. Our first topic today is from Jeff Sequel, who's the Wine Curmudgeon blog. I read all the time, Kim. He, he writes the, a lot of things he considers cheap wine blogs. We all have that issue with the cheap wine thing. And I know you hate that word, cheap wine. Well, inexpensive, but he, he wrote a book on shopping for inexpensive wines, but he wrote this blog about the good, bad, and ugly for wine consumers, are big companies bad for wine consumers? I thought this is a very thoughtful, well-written article to kind of get this concept across to the everyday consumer that there is this difference between sort of mass market generic wine and what we would consider, I guess, finer wine or more thoughtful wine. And we talk all the time. I always give the stat. There's five companies that basically make 80% of the wine you see on most store shelves. Three of those companies make 50% of the wine you're seeing on the shelves. So are they dominating the market and are they interesting wine? It certainly seems like so much of what is out there is controlled by these larger corporations. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of brand proliferation out there because certainly you walk into a wine store or look at wine list menu at a restaurant and you you can be overwhelmed by the variety and by all of the different names and different places and things like that. But especially when it comes to California wine, I think it is actually very difficult for consumers to understand by looking at that wine label if that is a wine that is small business, small owned, or if it is owned in fact by some larger corporation and it's more of a um, more of a brand label, you know, more of a manufactured product as opposed to something that has small business written all over it. Well, you, you know me with my wine label geekiness, but before we touch on that, do you consider these big companies, do you think they're just dominating the market? So do consumers really know that that how much dominance they have in the market? I don't think so at all. I don't think the consumers really have any idea that this is the way that the wine business really is structured at the moment. I mean, even something for us as ubiquitous in our daily line of work as the three-tier system where a winery or an importer sells to a distributor and then the distributor sells to the retailer or the restaurant. You know, that's something that we know all the time because we deal with it, but I don't necessarily think that that is something that the consumer is very well aware of. And if you follow any of the wine news, you will see almost weekly where these big corporations are buying up a lot of the smaller vineyards or wineries. And what's happening is we're in a change where these old older established wineries, family wineries, the generations or the next generations are not interested in the winemaking. So companies approach them to buy their brand or their label to add as one of the tiers for marketing. Right. And then that name that might have been on a wine label for 50, 60, maybe over 100 years, got the Mondavis of the world. That's just one example. You know, that's, that's a label that's been out there for a long time, but there are no more family members of Robert Mondavi with 
their hands in that business anymore. Bought by a larger corporation and that name is now more of a brand and less of a family affiliation. So now let's talk, get back to the wine label thing, Kim, because you were saying consumers can find out if a wine or a, or a brand is a mass marketed or owned by a big corporation just by simply turning the, the bottle over, looking at the back label and seeing where it says it is produced or where it is made. That is one of the laws that must be on the label to tell you where that wine is bottled. So if you were, for instance, following a brand like, say, Franciscan, which was a Napa winery, and they then get sold to a big corporation who's based in, say, Modesto, when you look at the back label, it'll say the brand Franciscan, but instead of saying bottled in Napa, it'll now say bottled in whatever city that corporation does most of their bottling in. 90% of the time, that's how I track uh, big brands. What about you, Kim? But for a, a consumer who's maybe just a little more of a casual wine drinker and doesn't know to look for Napa and doesn't know that that Modesto labeling on there should be a dead giveaway that this is owned by a, a bigger corporation, I don't think that the everyday consumer would be able to make that connection. So by me always Googling the uh, address on my maps, it's pretty, pretty <laughs> geeky, right? I um, actually really like that you do that. Well, so you're saying the average person, if they're drinking a brand, they're not checking out the label to see if anything's changed nope. most of the time. Yeah, I, I agree can't that. imagine that a lot of people do that. And I think it, it comes back to, it's like, if you, you don't know what the right question is to ask. I don't think that co- that consumers, casual wine consumers, even know to ask that question or even know to think about it, especially if they've been drinking a brand for, for a good long time. You you just, you don't think that changes are going to, to take place with that brand. And I don't think that some consumers even are in the mindset of, oh, this is this favorite thing that I've been drinking forever is actually a big mass market created commercial brand. You know, I I think people really like what they have in their glass. And especially if it's something that they've always been drinking and that they've always liked. I don't think people are of the mindset that, oh, I'm I'm actually really drinking the Big Mac of wine. And that is one of the major reasons I personally wanted to focus on wine education for my customers to let them know. And like we're doing with this show, Kim, is letting people know there is so much out there to explore in wines. And to how and how to just use simple terms that are on labels that help you quickly purchase a bottle. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why we pay attention so much to location and to where a wine label tells you that the grapes or the juice are from. We often get into conversations with with folks during our classes about areas and regions and what's on the label and does it make sense to buy a wine that is from a more specific area or not. And the general rule of thumb is the more specific your label is telling you that wine is from, generally the better quality the wine is. And it's generally because you have a wine that has more attention being paid to it because the place that it comes from is it is more special. One thing I really like talked about in this article was the shelf space issue, major brands versus smaller wineries, and how consumers are seeing just so much on the shelves from the big guys and very little from the little guys. And that's just all basically because they're producing more. They're making more brands. Mm-hmm. So do you think consumers are losing out on exploring wine because of this? I think so. But I think I I definitely understand the, the problem with having a less expensive wine from maybe a place that people don't know about or a grape variety they've never heard of or a blend or something that doesn't give a whole lot of information on the label. Consumers tend to buy what they're comfortable with. And going outside of that comfort zone to just randomly pick something off of a shelf that you might not have any familiarity with, that's intimidating. And even if it's not big bucks, 
you know, maybe it's only $10 or $12 or something like that. But the, the store owner like yourself has to make that commitment to bring in that less familiar thing and put it on the shelf next to barefoot at the same price point that is a whole lot more familiar to people. And yes, that unusual thing might be higher quality, but it takes so much more to get that sale. And that's one of the points that he also stresses in this article is that there are inexpensive wines out there that are more interesting, but because stores have a harder time selling them, it makes more sense for them to have those more familiar brands, which is which is a bit of a shame. And I think that that's where we come in. We like to talk about these unusual places like Portugal or like Southern France or some like random places in Italy or South America that people might not necessarily reach for, but that are producing really excellent wines. So Kim, tell our listeners, you when you walk into a store and there's always this term, the wine wall, you're, you're overwhelmed with all these wines you see. What tip would you give for a wine drinker that when they walk in that you can just easily look at something and say, oh yeah, that's a big brand. Just quickly scanning a wine aisle. How would you define it? And I'm curious if we're on the same page on that. So I would say that the less specific, like I was mentioning before, the place that it's saying that the grapes are from, chances are you are picking up something from a larger area. Like if it just says Australia on the label, chances are that that is a bottler that is bringing in grapes or juice from the entire country of Australia. And Australia is a really big place and they grow a lot of grapes and they make a lot of wine. That's a good indication that that is a more generic wine. Same thing for if it just says California, kind of the same same rules apply there. Yeah, I agree with that. And a lot of times it's how stores are putting them in what section. So if they just say this is the California section or they're saying it's the Australian section, then you could kind of work your way down or look at the labels a little closer that way. I was thinking more right away what draws me to the shelf is the shelf talker. Mm. So if there's this huge marketing, nice picture which just says you know, proud sponsor of or something, to me those are mass marketed materials for shelf talkers. Right. A lot of the smaller wineries will not do that. And sometimes they'll even put on that shelf talker like best selling brand of yada yada yada. Like that's a pretty dead giveaway that that is a wine that is being produced in enormous quantities and is more of this uh, wine for for commercial drinking. Now, that's not to say that these are bad wines, because generally they're not. They might not be as interesting or as subtle or have a lot of nuance to them, but we're not saying that they're that they're bad. There's very little actual bad wine out there. They're just a little bit more, I don't know, I just guess less less interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously selling a lot. They're making millions of cases. So somebody likes them. They mm -hmm. might not be your style, but that's why there's so much more to explore. So let us know what you think. Uh, is this good for consumers or bad for consumers? Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about me at my website, vinitaswineworks.com. And you can follow Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com. A great article that we ran across from 750.com has six ways to get customers out of their comfort zone. And we thought that this was a really fantastic list of tips for consumers to think about and to engage with wine professionals if you are buying wine, shopping for wine, or want to learn a little bit more about it. And I like to think that I used to use these tips kind of on a daily basis when I worked in retail. And, and it certainly helped getting people to try some new wines. I like this because it falls perfectly into the topics of the show because it's ways you can explore wine and get more 
more out of your wine experience. So the first thing they talked about was wine tastings. And we talk about this all the time. There's differences between walking into a store and someone is handing you a sample versus a sit-down tasting. Uh, I feel you can get so much more out of. But I think both are, are something that can be useful to the consumer, you know, especially if you are just a casual wine drinker. Maybe you're looking for something new to try or, you know, maybe you're curious about some things that you've never had before. So engaging in those wine tastings is a really excellent way to learn a little bit more because you can read about wine all day. You can listen to us. You can take classes till you're blue in the face. But if you haven't actually tasted any wines, then you're going to be missing out on a really big part of it. So you might think that you like a particular style, but you might try something that's the opposite and you find that you like that too. Yeah, we talked so much about how important tasting, 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 more than book reading, you get so much more out of it. You can build up your profile or what you like, what you don't like. So exploring this is key. And it only takes a little bit of wine to get an impression of what that wine is about. You know, you don't need a whole glass of something, but you do need to engage your brain a little bit. So if you walk into a store and they have five bottles opened up, even if it's something that you look at and you already have a preconceived notion about like, oh, I don't like reds from such and such a place, or I don't like rosé, or oh, champagne gives me a headache, or you know something like that where you just already think you know, try it anyway, because you might be pleasantly surprised. Take that little half an ounce sip and, and think about it, and then engage with the person who's doing the pouring, and then maybe you can learn to put words to those things that you do like, and just as importantly, put words to those things that you don't like, and that's going to help you learn as well. That's a great point about the volume. Many times you'll get a half ounce to an ounce, but the key thing for me on this, Kim, is when you have that small amount, don't just take one sip. Try to take a quick, small sip, mm -hmm. because usually your second or third sip is when you can you truly figure out what this wine is, is all about. So number two of these tips is to build a relationship. So build relationships with people who you can talk to about wine, and especially if you have a store that you frequent, having a relationship with somebody in that store who kind of gets where your palate is. Maybe you have found someone that likes a lot of the similar things that you like. That can be really helpful too, because then they can lead you to other things that you wouldn't have thought about in the first place to try. And this is a good tip for retail or restaurants. If you're going to same places all the time. They see what you're drinking, what you're ordering. And then if you want to venture out and explore something else, they know what you're already drinking so they can help you better understand. And one of the hottest things for me as a retail is a lot of times, say I have a Chardonnay drinker and I'll get something new and I think, wow, this person will love this because they drink Chardonnay. And I'll recommend it to them like, well, I'm sticking with my brand. But mm -hmm. I like that they're receptive to exploring out other things. And this is a great segue into number three, which is have a dialogue. So continue that conversation, figuring out what you like, what you don't like, and, and then just try try one new bottle. Get outside your comfort zone just a little bit and maybe you're shopping for six bottles. Get four of what you're comfortable with and then try a couple of things that you wouldn't ordinarily pick up. Yeah, and oftentimes the communication might not be on the same page. For instance, you might say you like a dry wine and we don't know what your dry or what your sweet is. So it may take some going back and forth to figure out what you like to kind of recommend things to, to you. Kim, what is your kind of best way you could say to communicate with 
with what you like. Just having that basic language and understanding that, yes, there is professional language that we use in wine, just like any any topic where there's, there's specialized language, and realize that there are some words that are going to be unusual or used in an unusual way. So the big one for us really is dry versus sweet. So the, the concept of dry in wine doesn't mean the opposite of wet. It means the opposite of sweet. So it means that there's no sugar that you can taste in that wine. And that is different from fruity flavor. So being able to say, I like a sweet wine and actually mean that you like some sugar in your wine can be very, very helpful when you're trying to order a bottle or buy a bottle because then the person that you're talking to knows what to give you and knows that you're not just using the term in a different way. And there are a bunch of things like this. So like tannins in wine, you know, do you like big, heavy reds that are really going to make your mouth totally dry up? You know, that that is a, an important thing, I think, for people to to be able to use correctly in their discussions with, uh, with someone who's helping you to buy a bottle. So the communication also leads to making a suggestion that is affordable or within the price range that you're currently drinking. You don't want to, if you're drinking a, a $10 bottle and someone recommends you a $40 bottle, that's not an affordable option to explore. So I love that they tackled this issue about the cost of mm-hmm. the wine. And I think that's really important too, because a lot of consumers, maybe you want to drink wine every day, but you can't afford $15 or $20 bottle every day. And that's okay. And that's why it's nice that there are options out there for an $8 bottle, a $10 bottle, or maybe you just have a glass and you make that bottle last a couple of days. You can always go up in the price range. And if you are interested in exploring better tiers of things, or you're looking for a gift, or you know that somebody that you're buying for likes, I don't know, Sauvignon Blanc. And so then you want to move them up and get them more special bottle for a special occasion. That is totally able to do. But I think working within somebody's budget is very, very important. And there certainly are plenty of things to explore out there. And talking about the Sauvignon Blanc, that that was one of the things they also mentioned was creating a theme to get people to explore. So if someone drinks Sauvignon Blanc, then you might say, let's go to a different region. So you could go to the Bordeaux for a nice white Bordeaux, or you could go to Loire region. So I love this idea of creating a theme to get you away from your normal. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like to discuss with people, if you like this grape variety, then you should try this grape variety too. And that happens all the time for me with like Italian white wines that are not Pinot Grigio, because a lot of people drink Pinot Grigio, love Pinot Grigio, but there are so many cool things out there from Italy that nobody's heard of and that style-wise are very similar to Pinot Grigio. So it's sort of fun to stretch those muscles and to to explore new things that you wouldn't necessarily just pick up from the shelf probably but to have somebody that will guide you to say okay I know that you like this grape why don't you give this one a try can be very cool so comfort zone to me with most wine shoppers I see is it's their it's their go-to how do we get them away from their go-to to to Mm -hmm. explore something else to show them there's so much more out there in the wine world and one of the uh, things that they also mention in this this article from 750 is tell a story and we hear that all the time you know stories sell wine and it's part of this whole marketing package if there is a an interesting story behind the winemaker or behind the place that this comes from and again this kind of gets back to is it a smaller production wine or 
is there like actual people involved in this and it's not a big commercial brand? I think that that is very intriguing and appealing to people as well. So it's not just the label. It's not just the grape variety. It's how interesting is the story behind this wine for some people. That's not for everyone. For some people, it's very much like, all right, this is tasty. I'm sticking with that. And that's cool too. So it kind of is, it's it's subjective and it really does depend on what the consumer I think is looking for at the end of the day. We talked about this story thing in the past when we were discussing quality of a wine and how I use that as quality. And I think we kind of clashed on that point of using the story. But think of this going back to our first topic today, when we're talking about big brands, if you search a big brand, is there a story that you can find on that brand other than this is a California wine, whereas a small producer, they're very proud to tell you about their vintage or their farm. They're farmers. So they're, mm-hmm. they're proud to tell you their story. It might be a family story, but to me, it's very important. It is a quality indicator. And we always go back and forth on this. (laughs) You are listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Now we have an article from Social Vigneron, which is the top 10 best wine apps of the year. Kim, are you using a lot of wine apps? Not a lot, but I do have a couple that I keep on my phone or that I'll use from my desktop if it uh, makes sense for me to be using them at home. The one that I've had for the longest on my phone is Vivino. And this is one that I think is very popular and a lot of people out there use it. It's very handy because you can take a picture of the label and there are other ones that, that do the same thing. But what's cool about it is you take a picture of the label and then it already has all that information in their system. So it automatically populates your your download with the information on the producer and the wine name and the vintage and it'll give you tasting notes and all sorts of stuff. And then you can put in your own personal impressions of that wine as well. I think Vivino was probably one of the first biggies on the market. Mm-hmm. And I find myself, you know, weekly I see something where, oh, there's a new new app and I download it and then I find myself never going to it a lot. And I, I was doing Vivino for a while. But why you want to use them, there's all different reasons why. I mean, do you want to just remember the wine? Do you want to rate a wine? Do you want to just share them to your social media so you're showing you're drinking this wine? So there are, there are all different apps for different purposes. I think it's useful for shoppers to have a someplace to go where you have maybe had a wine at a restaurant or at home and you've really liked it and just you have that recorded. It's easier than snapping a picture and keeping it in your photo file because you might take a picture of it and then either not be able to find it or don't remember what you liked about it. But if you have a whole bunch of these built up through an app, then that makes it easy for you the next time you go shopping and you're like, oh yeah, remember I liked that wine. Where was it? And just flip, 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 flip. And there it is. And so even if the store doesn't have that particular one, hopefully they'll have knowledgeable people there that'll be able to direct you to something similar. So I think for that type of thing, and as a former retail worker myself, the advent of phones having cameras was like a godsend for me because I no longer needed to try to be the sleuth when somebody came in and said, ah, you know, I had a bottle of wine and it had an angel on the label and I really liked it. Do you have that? And I'm like, ah, I've got 25 bottles with angels on it. But when somebody 
somebody's taken a picture of it, then they can show me the picture. And oh my God, made my life so much easier. So I think that that is really, really a helpful thing, not only for consumers, but then for people who are in the industry as well to help you, the consumer, out in finding that bottle that you really loved. What I see in retail is there's a lot of customers that come in using an app to shop on their own. But like you said, the people who want help, or they've taken a picture and showing you the picture. So I find mm-hmm. that the people using apps like to have the app kind of guide them. And I, I like that. They're using technology and they're exploring wine. But the people, like you said, I have an angel. Here's the picture. I mean, that's great. <laughs> but I see more people asking for help that do that than people that use the apps. Uh-huh. And getting on the re- on the industry side, I surprisingly don't see many you know professionals or salespeople using these apps. And when I'll be taking a note on my apps, they're always questioning me, what are you using? Be- I think they don't use it enough, if yeah. you ask me. Yeah. And, and there are different apps that are more useful for other things. So the one that I actually use the most is called Seller Tracker. And this isn't necessarily for shopping. It's more of a crowdsource platform to figure out how your wine is tasting at a particular moment. So this website and this app is more useful for people who maybe have a collection of wine and maybe you have three bottles of the same thing and you want to know, is it drinking really well right now? Should I keep it for a little bit longer? Or if you see an older bottle on a shelf and you're curious about how it's developing and is it too old? Should I take the chance and buy it? And that's not every consumer, but I think that it's very useful for certain people that are looking for it to do a very specific thing. So I know that I myself use that one more often than not for either finding an older bottle or figuring out I've got a couple of things in my cellar and they're older and I'm trying to figure out, should I drink them now? I've noticed more and more on the older apps like Vivino. I don't know if Cellar Track is the same, but their original thing was to collect the data, let you review it. Now they seem to go into advertising and selling of wine. Have you noticed this, Kim? Mm-hmm. Well, Vivino, you say rate it. Now they're saying, okay, well, you like that. Try this in our wine club. Right, right. So I don't like that they're doing that, but I guess that's the direction they're going to make money. Yeah, honestly. because at the end of the day, it's a business. So they have to generate income somehow. And that's sort of the downside about having free apps is that then you have to suffer through all the ads too. And there's so many other, what, they, what they're calling wine apps. It could be vintage chart apps. It could be, I've seen them where you can take a picture of the restaurant wine menu and it makes suggestions. Mm-hmm. So there's all different versions. There's maps, there's educational apps, which I download all the time for regions and right. grapes. There's event apps. There's local wine events, which will then, you go in there and you put what area you're in and it will populate it with fun wine tastings or activities that are going on locally to you. So that's that's a whole other thing as well. There's so much. One of the things I do often too, Kim, is I'll find one online and it's a British version or something and yeah. I can't get it here in the United States. I'm like, I'd like to try that. Yeah. You know? Well, that's one of the problems with something like Wine Searcher, which whenever you go in and if you Google a wine, chances are one of the top five hits is going to be this Wine Searcher website, which is helpful if you live in a state where you can order from anywhere and have it shipped to your home, but not very helpful for Massachusetts because Wine Searcher will show you all of the stores that are selling that wine. So stores in New York City, stores in Chicago, maybe someplace in California, but it's not helpful to you if you can't actually make that purchase. So yeah, it might give you a little bit of information about the wine, maybe some reviews, maybe a a vintage, a vintage chart of some sort, but it's not going to be really helpful for the actual purchasing of you. Sorry, Massachusetts residents. Yeah. So this article saying the top 10 best was probably right now the top 10 most popular apps that are out there. And nationally, not just for us here locally. Yeah. So you'd have to decide your on your own what's best. What what do you 
trying to get out of these apps so what helps you the most i do highly recommend using something to track what you drink so you can get better service when you're shopping Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. Please visit us on our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Leave us any questions and comments, and we'll talk to you again next week.